G'day. Welcome to Life in the Land, a Grazy Her podcast telling the stories of women living across rural and remote Australia. I'm Em Herbert, your host for this episode. Gillian Kilby, engineer and farmer's daughter from Canamble, is not afraid of the big decisions. This courage has seen her go against the grain most of her life and bounce from Canamble to Sydney to Walgett to Silicon Valley and finally to the Central West. Now she's breathing new life into country heritage buildings whilst helping regional startups increase their capacity, capability and confidence because she knows all too well how lonely a road it can be starting a small business in the bush. It takes a certain level of guts to dig deep and blow up your life and Gillian has done it not once but twice on an extraordinary scale. When I was 25, I had an incredible job building uh, wharves on Sydney Harbour with uh, teams of uh, construction workers, uh, mostly men. And I decided that I wanted to move regional. Um, I had a boyfriend out near Walgett and I decided that that was the next step for me. And so what I was leaving behind was a career that was on an upward trajectory I was the chair of the uh, Panel of Engineers Australia, which if you're an engineer, that's a very esteemed role. Um, I just received an opportunity to sit on the board of the um, Royal Agricultural Society Foundation. And from the outside looking in, I suppose people thought that was a strange decision to make. And the the comment was made to me that I was throwing away the education my parents had paid for to go regional to leave the opportunities I had in front of me in Sydney and that those opportunities would not present themselves in regional New South Wales. And I suppose where my story is different from what the outsiders looking in thought it would be is that when I got out there to Walgett, yes, there wasn't career opportunities for me, but I made them. I started a company to be a civil engineer and project manager for local councils and grew that to serve 54 local councils within three years of being there. That company didn't grow just through sheer determination, although I I am a very determined individual. That company grew because of the wonderful support that regional people threw around me. I remember people saying, wow, there's a civil engineer living on the farm halfway between Walgett and Bree. Um, We can get her to do the job let's ring Jill Kilby and ask her to do the job. So I had wonderful support from uh, people who needed my services who reached out to me first rather than going and getting that support from Sydney and Sydney-based engineers. So I, I didn't get there on my own. I got there because of the wonderful support of regional businesses that used my business services. I, I've heard you speak about starting a business before and you kind of throw it on its head when you say actually starting a business is easy. It's the mm. the creating the, you know, it's longevity. That's the hard bit. Uh, can you speak a little bit further to that? I remember going in, it was 18th of December in Dubbo, hot as hell. I went into the business enterprise center and I said, I'm starting a business and I've got my phone and my fax. I had a fax machine. <laughs> I had my laptop my keyboard and mouse, I had my ABN and my bank account, my credit card, my car, and I said to him, what else do I need? And he said, nothing. That's all you need to start a business. And what was hard is building clients, finding clients, finishing the last 10% of any job is really hard. It's also hard to keep those feelings of, have I done a good enough job for my client at bay? And it's also hard to have the courage to say, can I have some feedback on my work? And I think ultimately I didn't ask for enough feedback throughout those three, four years building that business because in hindsight I was doing a very good job and after three and a half, four years out there I lost my confidence because it was me who doubted that I doubted myself. Mm, that's uh, because I think it is an age old story, isn't it? Of girl moves out of city to the bush for love. Um, and things are all peachy keen, but actually you blew it up a second time. 
So things changed again when you were 28, 29. Walk me through that period of your life. I absolutely loved living on the farm. I had a great time. I was so fortunate and so well looked after and I was able to grow a business. There is no way I would be where I am today if I did not have that experience. So I got to a point where a Walgatshire Council rang up and said, we need some help raising the weir. We need to get ready because when the weir stops flowing, we only have 365 days of water. And we've all seen the crisis that unfolded in the 2019-2020 drought with Walgett almost running out of water and carting water in. We were aware of that uh, in 2012 and we were working to solve it. But when they rang up and asked me to help, I froze and I didn't know how to help them with that project. Uh, And that was a confidence problem. Fast forward 12 months, I left Walgett, left the boyfriend, left the homestead, left the farm, (laughs) moved back in with my parents, which is such a different and wild ride in your late 20s. Mm. Um, You are three individuals in a house, mum, dad and me, trying to work out our place in the hierarchy. Very clearly remember saying to mum and dad, I am one third of the decisions now and I think I'd been in the house about two days. (laughs) (laughs) It took us a while to find our groove. But the reason I left is very deep down I knew that that was not my forever. And I knew that there would be two broken hearts, but I also knew somehow that there would be two very different happily ever afters, and there are. And in hindsight, it's fine to say I made the right decision it's in hindsight it's fine to say of course that was the right choice but when you are isolated on your own talking to your labrador on the floor you really don't know which direction to take and for me my choice was to leave and because there were things I wanted to do with my life that I knew I would not be able to do if I stayed um I had a combination of things I wanted to do, but I had nothing rock solid. And I just always think of a monkey swinging from one branch to the next and it won't let go of the last branch before it grabs the next one. Well, I let go of everything. I let go of uh, my relationship, my my place of living, my um, community, my home, my hometown. I gave up my I think I was the chair of the black and white committee, which cooked food for the football club. I, <laughs> I left it all. And uh, what I found was because I had started that business, because I was unique, because I lived on a farm, because I'd built a business from nothing, the Australian Monash Foundation looked at my application to move over to California and to study at the number one university in the world. And they said, she's the one we're going to choose. If I hadn't, moved from Sydney and taken that risk if I hadn't built that business I wouldn't have had the next opportunity Mm. so while it was a difficult decision uh, at the time I had a gut instinct that it was the right decision and uh, as a result of my regional experience I was um, I had the opportunity to do more with my life and we have all um, I grew up on a farm at Canamble and even for someone who grew up on a farm at Canamble, uh, who didn't necessarily want to head back uh, and live in a life in the city again, what I did want to do is uh, fall back onto my education because that's what has got me so far in life already. The thing that um, really strikes me through that is it just takes such guts takes a huge amount of courage to follow your gut instinct, especially if you're going through a crisis of confidence, which it sounds like you were. Um, And, you know, if you were having that crisis of confidence in your business, it seems like that was indicative of, of a crisis of confidence personally. So where did you have, or how did you fall back on the resolve to follow that gut instinct? Is gut something that you have always been a big believer in or really listened to? I would describe my gut instinct as like a tiny little flickering flame at the time. 
and there was that song, um, This Girl Is On Fire, and I used to turn it up really loud when I was driving down the highway and just thinking this is as hard as this is, this is going to be the right decision. And I suppose you can you can help yourself to believe anything. Um, but that was my gut decision and that was what I was going with. I also received a lot of advice from a lot of people. I, I reached out to people. I asked questions. I asked about how they made big decisions. I remember sitting next to someone at a conference in Adelaide and I remember being really impressed with him. And he talked about how he had a life-changing opportunity to go to Harvard University for a week. So I emailed every combination of his name at the company he was working at. And this was back before everyone was findable on LinkedIn. This was in 2011, 2012. Mm. And I emailed every combination of his name, basically said, I'm at a crossroads. I heard you talk about this life-changing opportunity. I just want to talk to you about it. And within five minutes, the phone rang. And I just remember sitting in the middle of nowhere in my office and in comes this call from a guy who we've met once and he just asked me a series of questions that helped me uncover what I was feeling inside and and helped me get to the bottom of it. So complete strangers can be a real source of inspiration and information. Ultimately, the the decision sits with you. The decision sits with you, but a lot of people will offer a lot of advice. So my granddad said, you only get one shot at it. You can do anything you want. You've got you've got everything you need to do anything you want. That could mean stay, that could mean go, that could mean change direction. And all I heard when granddad and mum said, you only get one shot at it, I heard, you only get one shot at this life, go live it. Mm-hmm. And for me, that meant... Uh, heading off overseas, going to university and studying. And I ended up in America for five years. Wow. Wow. It, it's, um, yeah, to get that clarity though, though, I think is such an interesting journey. And I've heard someone say it's no good telling people to just act themselves or be themselves because we don't often know who that self is, but rather look at people that you'd like to emulate or who have uh, led journeys that you think are inspiring and invigorating and and try and kind of chase that or go down that path so I think that advice from the stranger or just you know being called to email him is interesting so 12 months after I left the farm I walked onto Stanford campus and I would say I still had question marks over you know is that is this the right choice is this not what I did know was I was so grateful for the opportunity to go away and study further. And as you walk onto campus, you go up these steps, there's buildings either side of you and stamped in the concrete right in the middle of the courtyard is a quote from Phil Knight. He's the founder of Nike. It says, there comes a time in every life where the past recedes and the future opens. Some will turn back to what they already know and some will walk forward into uncertainty. I cannot tell you which way is right, but I can tell you which way is more fun. And they're the words that I saw when I walked into Stanford and they're the words I took with me and have taken with me every day for since, since then. That's 10 years ago in September wow. that I headed off to uni. I love that. And again, I think that comes really does distill into courage to walk into the uncertainty. What was the immediacy of your experience at Stanford? What did, what were the things that were obviously, obviously it's so different in California to Walgett. I mean, it doesn't get much more different than that, but in terms of your cohort and the people you were around and the ideas that you're exposed to, I mean, what percolated away for you? Immediate reaction was how much people loved that I was different. They loved that I was from a rural area. They loved that I had run my own business. They loved everything that was unique and different about me. And people weren't celebrated from being the same, from following a traditional path. And that was really unique because all of a sudden, the more special you were, or the more unique you were, the actually the more special you were. Mm. And sometimes in rural areas, it's hard to be unique. 
and feel comfortable in your own skin. So that was definitely a, a, a highlight for me, and it's something that um, is something that I love about the community at the exchange. Is there's quite a diversity of people in there, and not only are you special for being different, but people aren't. Uh, I just used to remember people at Stanford would say, "Oh, that's really cool," and then that was it. They weren't invested in. Um, I don't know how to explain it. They held people held you lightly, like you could have a good idea, and they didn't have an opinion as to whether that idea would work or fail. They would just say, "Great, go for it," mm. and and that was nice. That was mm. nice to know that no one was worried that you would fail or your idea was somehow um, uh, not going to work. They would just say, "Great, go for it." You know, I, I don't care if you fail. Whereas I sometimes notice that if someone's got a risky idea. There's a little bit of, oh, is that really what you want to do? Do you really Mm. want to quit your job? Don't you think you should have a little bit more stability? Don't you think you should save up a little bit more? Don't you think you should just go to university just for four years and then decide? Don't you think you should get a trade under your belt? Don't you think you should? Yeah. And at Stanford, it's like, oh, cool, great. Okay, go have fun. No one's telling you, don't you think you should do something else? (laughs) It's like really holding space for experience. Like it's mm. not their experience. It's not affecting them personally. It also seems kind of counterintuitive to what I think is probably a pretty deeply imbued um, culture of tall poppy in Australia. Mm. That seems very different uh, mm. to Stanford. Yes, and people love sharing um, their stories of how they failed. Like it was sort of a bit of a cultural thing to actually talk about the failures mm. and share those stories. And, uh, yeah, so I... I uh, one way to look at my life is I might have blown it up a few times, but actually I think I just t- I just turned direction a little bit cr- too quickly for people around me. I mm. changed, I turned the corner so quickly uh, I didn't take people on the journey with me. I was like, right, oh, I'm going this way now. And for other people watching, that would have been really hard to watch. I know, I know when I was 28, 29, leaving Walgett, Someone said to me, you'll never have kids. You know, this is your chance. You'll be too old. And I said, "Um, 2020, year of the baby. And they said, no, you'll be too old then. I said, no, I'll be 36. I think I'll be okay. And November 2020, I fell pregnant with my daughter, Nina, who's (laughs) two years old now. (laughs) And I didn't plan it like that. I mean, to think that in 2012 I said 2020 is the year of the baby sounds ridiculous, but I did. <laughs> it wasn't that planned. It was just the the way I got around people saying to me, you know, you're approaching 30, you're going to miss out on having kids if you don't prioritise it, was for me to tell them there was a solution. And engineers <laughs> are very good at having solutions. It's such a, a fascinating thing to me that um... – like that that's a really great way to approach that and also just the never say never baby like it's such a mm. um the naysayers they really will find any way to plant a seed of doubt which is interesting what were some of the greatest takeaways from your time in california and why did that that chapter come to an end after 5 years i had the best yeah mm. what is it um the thing I did in California was I learned a lot of new things. I learned through my MBA. I learned through my Master's of Public Policy. And I didn't intend on doing a Master's of Public Policy when I got to Stanford. It was after the first year of the MBA that I added the extra degree to stay three years on campus. And again, there was a lot of conversation with people saying, don't you want to just get back in the workforce? Like you're going to have an extra year of debt. You're going to have an extra year out of the workforce. And I just thought what a privilege to stop and learn from the very best. One of my favourite professors was an advisor in the White House. Uh, Another professor was an advisor to George Bush. Like these are people that you don't see every day. We had lunch with Oprah. There were 20 of us. We had Elon Musk came and spoke to us. Condoleezza Rice taught one of my classes. Safra Katz, the CEO of Oracle, told me about how they did it takeover of another company hewlett-packard like just the what we were seeing what we were experiencing what was unfolding in front of us was really interesting and 
that is a once in a life opportunity just to stop and take it all in. And in that third year of public policy, I learned to, um, <laughs> I learned to ski and mountain bike. <laughs> <laughs> and I also learned how to set up my own business in America. I incorporated over there and I did two years working on the California high speed rail between um, LA and San Francisco. And that was really interesting because here we are acquiring almond farms to build a railway track. Fast forward a couple of years later, I'm back in Dubbo and Inland Rail are acquiring farms at Canamble where I grew up to build Inland Rail. The experience was uh, relevant and timely. And while I didn't know at the time working on California high-speed rail would be relevant to my future, it was highly relevant. And there's always something I've done overseas that comes in handy when I get back to Australia. Mm. Yeah, um, meditation teacher Tom Knowles talks about following your charm and how by following the things that charm you, that will come out in the wash later on. And that sounds really pertinent and quite poignant and serendipitous. So I call um, I call mountain biking my meditation. It is you are, you are required to keep everything on and engaged and watch where you're going you can't think and I need that level of intensity to switch off my brain from work Mm, really that immediacy like total presence um, physical presence which is kind of in order to not die (laughs) in order to not die and in order to stop and switch off Mm. yeah yeah interesting so what brought you back to Australia in 2017, two things happened. I was uh, accepted into the White House Fellows Program. There were 13 of us who would work um, as a presidential fellow in the White House, which means we're on like a scholarship to be uh, innovating within a department of the US government. When I applied, Obama was the president. When I reapplied, I thought it was going to be Hillary. When I got accepted, obviously everyone else pulled out because it was Trump. (laughs) And I was one of 13 people who were like, I'll sign up. I want a window into what's happening. I want to see this firsthand. Anyway, just before I was supposed to start, they rang up and said, "Um, the program's changed and if you don't have a green card, if you're not an American citizen, you can't be part of the program. So that, that made me frustrated that here I am taking a spot in the number one university in the world and in America, and now I'm not allowed to work for the government and serve the government uh, in America. I, that frustrated me that you wouldn't let me help innovate within their government. So that frustrated me. And the second thing that happened in 2017 is I wrote a letter to the CEO of Telstra because I'd been back to Dubbo and I'd seen that the old post office was still uh, unrenovated for sale and uh, continuing to be uh uh, run down, talked about by the community. It was an absolute mess. And the community was frustrated. And I'd seen a fair bit of real estate uh, through my classwork and through the people I was friends with in California. I took a voluntary role on an organization um, called the San Francisco Fort Mason um, Real Estate Committee. I just volunteered to be part of this heritage society that looked at refurbishing and how to fund the refurbishment of the Fort Mason precinct right near the Golden Gate Bridge. And so I'd learned a little bit about real estate. I wouldn't say I was an expert. So I wrote a letter to the CEO of Telstra. I sent it via a friend of mine who lives in Armidale, Chris Hancock, and he passed it on to Andrew Penn, who wrote back within about 20 minutes and said, we're on to it. And if anyone's tried to call Telstra lately, 20-minute turnaround time to the CEO (laughs) is (laughs) record-breaking. And no elevator music. <laughs> no, no, just he wrote this email and basically said, Gillian's a superstar. Um, it is really worth looking at this proposal. And you just really can't underestimate the power of a friend uh, making a connection for you. Mm. Um, and Chris and I had met, interestingly. He's an Australian CEO, lives in Armidale. My professor at Stanford University said, you know, there's a bunch of Aussies turning up tonight to have a lecture near my office and I heard about it do you want to come down and meet them and so I took off across campus thinking there's a group of Aussies on campus how good would that be and he was one of the Aussies that I serendipitously met so a weak connection but someone who was willing to 
send an email to the CEO of Telstra for me. And you were also willing to ask. I did have to get out of my way. Telstra Mm. came back and said, okay, bring us a proposal. So I I wrote a 70 or 80 page business plan about how I would redo the building and what price I thought it should be and who the partnerships would be with. I met with 14 different organizations in Dubbo to talk about it. I went above and beyond. And what I've learned is um, you can do all the research in the world. (laughs) You can prepare and write a speech and write a business plan, but it means nothing if you don't sit down with the one person who can make the decision to sell the building. So I went to all this effort. I'm going to get all these letters of support and talk to all these people and do all this research. And at the end of the day, if you do not have a sale contract, you do not have an opportunity. So I finally sat down with the head of real estate for Telstra, Julian McKernan. I was so nervous. And we spent an hour talking about values and work experiences and what mattered to us and why the exchange would be beneficial to Dubbo. We didn't talk price. We didn't talk process. We just talked about why this mattered. And that was really insightful to me that all that prep work I had done really didn't matter because Telstra wanted to know that a good person was going to take over this asset and do good things with it. And Mm. I think that's a big credit to Telstra because they could have, they could have sold it and uh, just let it go to anyone who wouldn't be a good custodian of our heritage um, historical buildings. Mm. Yeah. They wanted heart. So why Mm. Dubbo and, uh, and why the clock tower? I mean, what is, so, about, what is it about heritage buildings that really mm, excites you? I read a book in 2018 when I was deciding to leave America called Designing Your Life by Bill Burnett. He's a professor at Stanford. They've put 20,000 kids through this course basically saying, don't wake up at 30 doing what you didn't want to do with your life. Uh, try and get it right when you leave uni. Try and lead with your values when you choose your career. And I read this book and it said, go back through your past work experiences and pick your top three and work out why they were great work experiences. And the one I kept coming back to was my first job out of university. I renovated a heritage building at at Walsh Bay, just about a stone's throw from the Harbour Bridge. And I did it um, as a project engineer for the company I worked for, Waterway Constructions. That was such a highlight for me. Fancy working on a building that was 100 years old that had been around longer than me and a building that will continue to be around longer than I will ever be here. And to know that if you create space, the right space and the right environment, community will fill that space. So you build a showground, you create the annual show, you create the camp draft, you create the experience for people to come to a rodeo. It's the infrastructure that creates the opportunity and then it's the committee that does the work to the glue to bring everyone together. And I was really attracted to the fact that a building can bring people together if the right ingredients are there. Um, So Dubbo, my parents had sold their farm at Canamble and they had moved to Dubbo. So Dubbo became our new sort of family base. My sister was there. My brother wasn't far away in Orange. And when I was coming back to Australia, I was 35, single, and, uh, yeah, buying this building. And I ran for politics, actually. I ran for pre-selection, not for politics, just for pre-selection for the Dubbo seat. And I had six weeks of campaigning in Dubbo to, to get that spot. I missed out, and it was a really – I'm really lucky I missed out. So you talk about changing direction really quickly – It was a quick decision to try and it was a quick decision within six weeks. I knew I wasn't pre-selected. But six weeks in politics was a really long time. I lost five kilos (laughs) uh, and I was waking up at 3 or 4 a.m. in the morning stressing about it and by 8 p.m. at night I was getting myself in the shower just thinking, oh, my God, it's 8 p.m. I finally don't have to call anyone to campaign. I don't have to receive calls with people asking me, am I good enough to do this role? And I don't have to call people and ask them to vote for me. I was very well looked after in the process, but it was something that I found I found it incredibly difficult. It was a very stressful 
um, thing to do. And I really admire the people who step into politics because that is hard. Mm. Um, and within a month problem. of that's that it is so mm. hard. We're not getting the it's people so who, who it could be a little bit easier for, but who could be excellent. That's it. I mean, I have an MBA, I have a master's of public policy and I wasn't pre-selected. So, you know, that's on the party. That's not on me. I have the education and the capability to do the job, but I choose not to do it again. Mm. And that's a loss for, uh, for some people might think that's great. <laughs> no, it is. No. It's a loss for the political fabric of regional Australia. Yeah, it's a loss, but it's good for me. And within a month, we closed the deal with Telstra, which took a year and a half to get the deal done. And sliding door moment, you know, to have within a month have the deal closed to get the building and to start the renovation. I was fully occupied on that project. But what were you planning? Like what was your vision for the clock tower and how did that come about? It's always been for a co-working space. Even from the very first letter I wrote to the CEO of Telstra, I spoke about the co-working spaces I have been a part of, that I had been a part of in San Francisco and at Stanford University. And so for me, I knew that if we could convert that building into a co-working space, we could cover the cost of the renovation. Now, this is a building that is seriously deteriorated. It's going to cost millions to renovate. Um, and and you have to have a future use that will pay for the renovation. If you don't have that, um, unless you're a philanthropist, you actually can't do it. Um, I had a little bit of money saved up to allow me to buy the building and I had a very difficult time getting a loan. The first bank said no. The second bank took six months. The third bank, which was the Commonwealth Bank, they uh, I rang them and said, I'm having a really difficult time. And they sent, they had the Australian uh, manager for agribusiness in Dubbo. And I took them on a tour of a building and I said, this is what I want to do. This is my vision. This is why I know it will work. These are my numbers. And he said, we're in. And the state manager, she's a lady, she said, yep, we're backing this. And within six weeks, I had the finances to do the renovation. Yeah, Commonwealth Bank have have said, we understand your values. We understand your vision. We will look seriously at your numbers and we'll back you. So the Commonwealth Bank have backed me to buy the post office in Dubbo. And then in the middle of COVID, I have no idea what we were thinking, buying a second co-working space in COVID. I mean, <laughs> everything was kind of closed. Yeah. But I was in Narrabri working on an inland rail project and there's this beautiful old cordial factory and ice works across the road from council. And I, I said to a friend of mine, I said, that's an amazing building. I would love to, like, look at that. And she said the owner, my friend Jocelyn Jansen, said the owner's selling uh, you should give him a call. I called him Saturday at 5 p.m., summoned up the courage. It took a lot of courage to pick up the phone and call him. I remember standing in my kitchen, pacing backwards and forwards, and I gave him my pitch, and he said, my wife has been to the exchange, and he said, I was going to put it on the market on Monday. I was going to go public, but I won't. I'll hold it for you to come and have a look at and give me an offer. He knew that if he sold to me, we would do the right thing by the building, and we would make it a community use so we bought in 2021 we opened a year ago this week in Narrabri we did a full renovation we used local trades and we now have a wonderful second co-working space in Narrabri there's a second building on the premises and we're going to hopefully develop that 12 months from now and we hope to find a tenant in Narrabri who wants to turn that space into an inc another incredible space. So we don't know whether it'll be food and beverage or whether it'll be more office space. Maybe it's like a collaborative um, shopping hub, like what if Buy From The Bush, if you're listening, Grace, what if <laughs> Buy From The Bush had a cooperative shop in this big old cordial factory? Um, I don't know. I just I just know that I can create a beautiful building if someone else can be the glue that brings the community together inside. But Jill, how did you know that these things would fly? How did you know that co-working spaces were a a pain point in regional centres like Dubbo <laughs> and Narrabri? 
that's it. Really like you have a lot of people blazing the trail ahead of you. I knew my pain point. I knew that the pain point for me was in Walgett was losing my confidence because I didn't have community around me. I didn't have people around me that were um, supporting me to to have confidence building my business. I didn't have Commonwealth Bank saying, yeah, we will back you and here is how you put together your financials for us to be able to interpret it and back you. Here is how you do this. So I, I built, the way we built the exchange was to focus on the problem and the pain point that that we have experienced. Loneliness, isolation, lack of community that wants to talk about business. You go into the football, you stand on the sidelines at the netball, you don't really talk about business. You don't talk mm. about end of financial year tax deductions. You don't talk about um, how you might approach pricing a project. God, how do you put a price on a consulting job? How much should I charge? Should I put in an overnight fee? You know, all those sort of little questions that bubble up are actually answered around the kitchen bench when someone's having lunch, someone's boiling the jug, someone's uh, checking in for the day and they ask, you know, the business owner standing next to them, oh, I really like your um, your new diary organiser. Where did you get that from? All these little tips and tricks in business are learnt through conversation. They're learnt through osmosis. So when we built the exchange, it was one, solve the pain point we knew existed because we had very deeply experienced it. And the second thing was I'd been the beneficiary of working in collaborative spaces for five years in mm. California. So I had already seen them in action. There were already thousands of co-working spaces across America when we started in Dubbo. Um, we were just a first mover. My expectation is 10 years from now, there will be hundreds of co-working spaces in every town because everyone will have a niche and people will come together to work together because remote working will continue and will actually increase in my view. Oh, there's so many places I want to talk about from there. Mm. Um, it must have been very difficult to go from that orbit of the calibre of people that you were in California, like Silicon Valley to Central West, that's what you talk about. But there obviously was that demand because you've had around 800 people um, mm. come in and out through Dubbo or, or on your database for the exchange in Dubbo and around 500 in Narrabri. I mean, these are huge numbers. This is a lot of people. So did this come from word of mouth or um, were people just drawn to the values or how do you think that the the growth has been so sustained? We're solving, we're solving a pain point and we're solving for a need and the need is community. The need is to collaborate. The need is, is actually a feeling. Just remember one of our coworkers earlier this week at about 4 p.m., she stood up and she said, I've almost made it through my entire list, even the hard stuff. That is the feeling you get when you check in for a day at the exchange, you get your jobs done and you check out. Now, this woman is a farmer. She uh, spends one day a week in town working from the exchange. She makes her list all week. You know, I'm going to save that job for Monday, save that job for Monday. And then she turns up on Monday, she goes through it methodically, she gets a coffee at the cafe, she has a chat to all the other business owners, and then she goes home feeling really good and accomplished. And I think I spoke earlier about when I was working in regional New South Wales with my engineering, I wasn't asking for enough feedback to get the validation that I needed that my work was good. After a year at Stanford, I came back in my summer holidays and I helped Walgett Council um, with their documentation to raise the weir. I spent um, time having grown the confidence I needed in my first year at Stanford and I came back and I actually took on that project. I helped them do the first um, shovel-ready documentation they needed to raise the weir and in 20, uh, I think it was 2016, Gladys Berejiklian went back out there and she said, this project's shovel-ready and we're going to fund it. So that work. Um, did get done um, and it did get funded. Full circle moment, as Oprah yeah. would say. <laughs> yes, full, a total full circle moment. And what we're trying to achieve is is feelings. The hardest thing about the exchange is we help a lot of people when they're starting and once they grow bigger, 
we can't support their growth with real estate because we have single person offices and we have co-working desks and we have meeting rooms. So they move out into their own space um, where they can fit two people, three people, four people. And so we um, we feel so sad when we don't <laughs> get to see them every day. <laughs> uh, but ultimately um, they always remain part of the community. So it's one of the hard things about um, the exchange is we very much look after people early in their careers. We also look after a lot of businesses that come back in to have their team meetings. Um, Three Rivers Machinery come in every Monday morning to have their team meeting and then they separate and split up for the week because they're all remote workers. Mm. And I think that's a really impressive business practice. That's smart business practice. Um, and so in Dubbo, we've just we've just decided that we want to go on a bigger we want to go on a bigger journey, a longer journey with our tenants. So we've bought a second building called the Governor, and the Governor is on the corner of Church and Macquarie Street, the main street. It's just 200 metres down the road from the exchange, and it's a three-storey state heritage listed. So we're in the big time now. We've bought a state heritage listed building, which just means we need to go through more hoops to do Mm. anything with it. (laughs) But what it does is because it's got six office suites that fit about four people each someone can now start in the exchange and then move out 200 meters up the street into a bigger office and then just when they have a meeting or need to have a coffee or need to have a break sit on the couch we've got a little puzzle um, on the coffee table now that people are putting together they can pop down to the exchange and get away Um, and it also serves disabled access down at the exchange as well so that's really important to be Mm. able to have that flexibility in your workplace. Mm. I've been to the exchange a couple of times and Mm. I mean, it's, it's co-working, but make it bougie. It's such a beautiful Mm. place to be. Is there something about the aesthetic of it as well? Do you think that people are craving beautiful spaces to, to work out of and be in? Mm. I want people to know that they're good enough, that they, that they deserve that fit out. When in the middle of the drought, 2019, 2020, when we were getting those big red dust storms blowing in, we were in the exchange and someone said, it's like we just shut the door and we could be anywhere in the world right now sitting in here. And isn't it wonderful to be able to separate yourself from what you're going to go home to that night, the dust in the house, um, the drought, the uh, never-ending, never-knowing when it's going to rain again to be able to come into a space and and feel good and included and productive that you are contributing with an off-farm income and that you are part of a business community where you have a home. So I definitely um, think that a, a, a modern, uh, very high-end fit-out is about me saying to the business owners, you deserve this, you, you are worth um, you are worth this level. And if that's something that makes you feel good and great about running your business, then that's that's one of our, um, that's what we want to provide. Mm, I love that. Uh, I'd like to just talk, I mean, you've had such amazing experience around leadership and culture that I'd really love to circle that back into regional businesses. I mean, we've we could talk about this for a very long time, but in terms of culture and leadership, what are some of the things that perhaps regional businesses are missing or lacking or they've missed a step and they could perhaps implement in order to, I guess, establish themselves as better leaders in whatever industry or field they're in and improve their culture within their business? So leadership is uh, is always an ongoing challenge and it's very lonely being, it's very lonely running a business um, it does sometimes feel quite isolating. There's leadership and there's management. So leadership is the collaboration and gathering of people to pursue a common goal that is mutually beneficial for everyone involved. And management is you know, time, resources, people, tasks to achieve that goal. And they're very different things. Leadership is where you say to someone, this is where this is where we're going. We're going to create this space that makes people feel amazing to walk into. We're going to build a community and renovate a building so that 10 years from now, someone will point to the exchange and say, I started my business there and that made all the difference. 
And that's that's leadership. Management is where you sit down at 10 o'clock at night and you look up your spreadsheet and work out how you're going to afford it. <laughs> and then and then you communicate through systems and processes to your team how we're actually going to physically get it done. So great leadership is taking your people on that journey. I I always had um, a lot of gratitude for the people that I work with. When we started the exchange, one of the first thing we did in every team meeting was to report in on how you showed gratitude in the week preceding that meeting. So mm-hmm. some organizations, the first thing they report in on is safety because they're a construction company. We would report in on how you showed gratitude because we felt that showing gratitude to the people in our community was something that would um, help them feel good as well. And building culture um, is a combination of a thousand actions. It can never just be done in one immediate action. And it takes, culture does not start with the one person at the top either. Culture has to be at every level and every person is responsible for it. And when one employee is um, uh, diminishing that culture through blaming others or blaming the boss or feeling that they're not responsible for one thing or another. When the team starts to uh, break the culture, they're almost saying, well, culture is the responsibility of the boss, but it's not. Culture is the responsibility of every single person in the team to make it a good place for every single person to turn up. And, and that responsibility has to sit at at the team level, not at the leadership level. I, I still think I'm on a journey of how to lead and how to manage. I, I've got, I reckon I've got another 35 years to get that right. And by then I hope I can retire. I mean, <laughs> I've got a lot of debt at the moment and you've all seen how the interest rates have, uh, have risen. So I'm not retiring anytime soon. <laughs> no time soon, Jill. You are locked and loaded, babe. Uh, I am here for the long haul. Do you consider yourself more of a leader or a manager? I'm not very good at managing. Alex Cowley, who is our manager at the exchange, is brilliant. She has a real appreciation for taking people on a gradual journey of the time, tasks, resources, systems and processes to get the job done. I'm more, this is where we're going Mm. and this is vaguely how we're going to get there. And I'm also the person that, um, in my view, sort of takes the risk, um, the risk to build and develop. When we built the exchange in Narrabri, we didn't have any tenants lined up. When we bought the governor in Dubbo, it's a little less risky because there are already tenants in there and we're gradually, as one tenant decides to leave, we renovate and move the next mm. person in. So, mm-hmm. um, so, yeah, so my role is very much... My role is also very financial, trying to understand the spreadsheets and trying to ensure the financial sustainability of the business. This is probably something that I've been trying to get my head around lately is with the rise of more and more businesses out there, we're having a lot of wonderful um, opportunities for people to bring in off-farm income, for people to be independent, um, for people to have a really satisfying um, career and to make money off their passion and it's how do you help upskill people in the financial acumen they need to take the next step? So they've grown a business, a photography business, a graphic design business, a professional consulting service. How do they then take the next step to either grow it or uh, buy the building they're in or um, if they want to? And mm-hmm. I, I, Not everyone wants to bust through glass ceilings and that's okay. For those that do want to, no inspirational guest speakers can help you sit down at 10 o'clock at night and get your spreadsheet right. Mm. There is a level of formal education or outsourcing to your accountant that needs to be done to get the nitty-gritty required to be able to make very strong financial choices. And I don't do it all on my own. I've just brought in an incredible advisor, Tony Alderdice, to support me in the business um, to give us that advice that we need as well as at my accountant yes, journey. And that's, is that something that you are looking to, um, because I know that you're developing webinars around <laughs> farm management, um, mm-hmm. 
so is that something that like what are some of the the practical takeaways that you're hoping that producers and businesses involved in agriculture are going to take away from those webinars and um i guess get that experience the great thing about the webinars is it's sharing the knowledge to look to professional services to support your business growth so me as a small business owner, I have a business coach. I have someone looking at my finances. I have my accountant. I have my lawyer. And we seek professional services where we have gaps. Mm. Sometimes in farming, um, being an isolated industry and farmers learning everything from their father or mother or from their grandfather, um, some farmers are missing out on the professional services that would complement and strengthen their current business and make them more resilient. So if a farmer is resisting succession planning, if a farmer is resisting an estate plan, if the farmer is not clearly communicating to the children what's happening in the business, that is all putting Australian agriculture at risk because if someone, if there is death, divorce or discontent within the farm and someone leaves or someone disappears, um, that can trigger an incident where the bank will say this farm is no longer sustainable or it is not possible to pay out these two off-farm siblings and keep the third on farm. Mm. So the future of successful farming businesses relies on professionals stepping in to support farmers with succession planning, with family communication, with innovation, technology, understanding and managing weeds, looking after stock nutrition with a vet. These are all external services that help you professionalise your business whether it's engaging the Rural Financial Counselling Service to look at a 10-year history of your finances and a two-year forward estimate. That is a free service. Mm. So it's a real thing now um, to promote the opportunity for farming businesses to continue to professionalise just as small businesses do as well. Mm. That's fascinating. So how will these webinars be available and how can they be accessed? So the webinars are available through the Exchange YouTube channel. So people can subscribe to the Exchange YouTube channel and they can watch those webinars and they'll also be available um, on the DPI website. The link's in our Instagram bio to sign up for the upcoming webinars. They'll be on Ag Tech Rural Financial Counselling Service and there's a few other under development at the moment. Um, And we just really hope that Um, farmers continue on the professionalization of their business journey just as we're doing the same thing in our small business here at the exchange and so they're free as well all free incredible Mm. Mm. yeah it's amazing yeah there's so much free resources out there you're talking about just briefly i just wanted to circle back quickly um to the small business aspect with outsourcing and i suppose that is probably a key a part of being a leader is understanding where you need to outsource and, and what you're able to, mm-hmm. or capable to do yourself. But for businesses that are very small or are just getting going, I mean, what are, do you think are the key first steps to outsourcing? Is it the business coach to help you scale and grow? Uh, is it, you know, the accountant so that you're not doing the books or you can make savvier financial decisions for that very That's small fledging? Question. I mean, where do you start first? My first hire, my first outsourcing was um, a project officer um, because that allowed me to do the higher value work that got um, paid at a higher rate and she was doing all the correspondence and reports. Um, So my first uh, outsourcing was actually to drive greater revenue into the business. Because you can pay for a business coach, but if that business coach isn't the right fit uh, to grow revenue, you'll do all the other things really well. Like you might do systems and processes well. You might do people and culture really well. Um, but financial sustainability is really important. Mm. And it's unsexy. <laughs> it's not sexy at all, but it's on my mind a lot right now. I think it's on my mind a lot because we are growing. We're looking at a... a we're looking at building number five in town number three. And I'm not sure how it'll go. It's We're getting close. But for me, I'm sort of sitting down saying, okay, this weekend I'm going to spend a couple of hours triple checking my numbers on this. I want to know that, that this will work. Because we do a lot of social good. The exchange is a social impact business. So we're pour, pouring our profit into the good that we do. 
but it has to be sustainable in the long run. Mm. And for us, owning the building is key to the financial sustainability. Sustainability. If we didn't own the building and we've just had three years in COVID where we were shut a portion of it, we would not have survived. 2020 was the year of the baby. And <laughs> it is, uh, I, you know, it's, it just drives me wild. The idea of balance, and also it's only no mothers. Mothers are only asked about balance, um, so I don't want to ask about that. But I do want to reframe it in terms of output and productivity, in terms of navigating. I mean, how do you navigate that? For oh. I mean, you're about to. Well, if you're looking at number yeah. five, and you've got the stable, which is your engineering Consulting consultancy. Business, yeah. There's really not. There's no such thing as juggling or balancing. It's one or the other. Mm-hmm. So I have a wonderful weekend, uh, Saturday morning, Nina and I are fully switched off, hanging out together, going for coffee, chasing birds, uh, phone phone away in my handbag. I'm not trying to juggle two phone calls and look after her at the same time. It's just not possible. Nina has a great life. Oh my God, she just loves daycare. She was, we got there this morning and it wasn't open and she was banging on the door, <laughs> crying that they wouldn't let her in. <laughs> It's hilarious. For me, when I got pregnant and told my team, I said, this will be the best thing that ever happened to me because it will remove me from the things I shouldn't be doing and it will continue to professionalize our business. It will hand more autonomy to the team, more decision-making to the team, more opportunities to the team, and I will have to sit back in um, in more of a leadership role, not a management role. And that has been the outcome. Um, So I also have have a fabulous partner and we have put resources in place to make it possible for me. I've been on the road for three days this week filming and Nina's been in her best environment here at home um, with pick up and drop off um, done by dad. And, uh, and that's just wonderful. Like I'm so lucky like that. Well, I'm not it's lucky. Not luck. We have, you've said that we've up. put things in. Yeah. We've put things in place to make this a reality. So that's mm-hmm. good. And then the stable group is a consulting organization. There's three directors, myself included. We have 40 consultants across the business. We only work in regional Australia on really sticky challenges and we have a business manager. And I think that's been one of the great first steps. You know, when we talk about what are the first steps for outsourcing, um, the business manager is sort of the the heart of the business that helps us keep running on a day-to-day basis. So you can be working on your project, not worrying about the central operations. Um, that's been a, a big relief and it was something we did without for the first year building the business mm. um, because we were bootstrapping. We were sort of really limited in our resources and now that we've got it in place, it, it's really made a big difference, especially personally for me it's made a big difference because a lot of that was falling on my shoulders. I, I like to ask that question because I have personal stakes in it. I mean I want to know <laughs> how other people do it so I can do it better because I sometimes feel like I do both badly and uh you know, oh, it's one or the other. Six, no, six thirty to seven thirty, just with Nina. Seven thirty, she's off to daycare. Then, like this afternoon, I'll pick her up about four thirty. We'll go and have fish and chips, and then by six thirty, seven, she'll go to bed. And I try not to speak to anyone in those time frames because she gets upset, mm. and I get upset, and mm. both parties feel bad. Other people will understand that you can't talk but equally if Mark's here I'll say you know you jump on this I'll quickly take this call yeah people without kids can take phone calls after 6 30 and people with kids just can't take phone calls between 5 30 and 6 30. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. Yeah well Jill that's just been fabulous I've just relished the opportunity to talk to you to pick your enormous fascinating brain and just to to dive a little bit into your story so I really appreciate your generosity and time. Thank you. Thanks, Emily. It's been wonderful to be here. I felt so invigorated after talking to Gillian. There's something relentlessly optimistic about her approach to problem solving. Her ability to see a pain point and create a business around is the sort of innovation that will help regional centres and people thrive. I think we're really lucky to have brains and passion like Gillian's in the bush, and I'm looking forward to the day she opens a co-working space near me. This is a reminder that our latest issue of Brazy Her went on sale recently, and it's truly such a gorgeous edition. The stories surrounding businesses in wool are so inspiring and beautifully photographed. 
I also have a piece in this issue around stillbirth and spoke to some incredibly generous and courageous women from around country Australia about their experience. If you don't have newsagents near you, you can always jump online to grazyherd.com.au to purchase a copy or consider subscribing. We have a current subscription offer of a pair of stunning iris and wool gloves to keep your mitts warm when you walk to the mailbox six times a year on Grazy Herd Delivery Day. Until next time, keep well. My name is M Herbert and this is a Grazy Herd podcast.